0: Welcome to Employee of the Month. Here's your host, Katie Lazarus.
1: Welcome back to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus, and it is good to be here. I don't know if you can hear my dog scratching at the door of the sound booth, but I'm realizing that that is what I must be like when I'm either around the institutions that I want to be a part of, whether it's like the Jim Henson Company or the Colbert Report or the New York Times, or just around people who have jobs that I covet and somehow know I can't have, but aspire to be a part of, and just wanna be accepted. It's um, probably not much different than what's happening with my dog right now, because I have no idea why she wants to be in the sound booth when she's in a very nicely air-conditioned room, and I am feeling like I am going through early menopause, because I am not. It is hot, it is unethically hot in New York, so if you are here this summer, just know that if you see naked people walking around, those are the sane ones. But speaking about institutions that I admire and am obsessed with, and I think I am probably one of a zillion people who feel this way about the New York Times, uh, it is such a pleasure to have on the show Jody Cantor, who was the youngest person appointed to an editor position there. Um, she dropped out of Harvard Law, went to Slate, and then from there became the youngest arts and leisure editor at the new york times she's now a reporter there covering politics and also wrote a new york times best-selling book called the obamas which i've read and listened to on audio and i recommend Um, Not because someone is holding a gun to my head right now telling me to recommend it. No, my dog is not holding a gun to my head. I think she just wants to be petted. So without further ado, I want to bring to you my interview with Jody Cantor, which took place at her home. You'll notice that she refers to the show we did at UCB because she was on the live employee of the month, which was so much fun. It was taped at Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. Unfortunately, the sound person uh, forgot to record it, although he did. Tell me, not that I'm bitter, but he did say when I asked, like, hey, do you have the audio recording of our show from UCB, which was sold out, super fun? Morgan Spurlock, Wyatt Senac, The Daily Show, and Jody Cantor. And he said, no, but I was really, I was praying someone was going to record it. And that was a very valuable life lesson for me in uh, making sure to always hire competent people or just sane. Sane people would be a good idea or so someone with uh, the logic skills of at least a five-year-old. I'm going to start putting that on the requirement list. So uh, if anyone wants to get into sound recording, (laughs) you're welcome to contact me because it would be nice to record the interviews. The good news is, is that it enabled me to go spend a lot of time with Jodi and um, really get to hear about her work and what it was like for her to write about the Obamas, which is so intriguing. And it was such a pleasure to sit down and and really have some one-on-one time, a longer interview, which is always really nice about the podcast in particular, that I get to spend time with our guests. Um, If you want to hear more from Employee of the Month, please go to the website, the Employee of the Month show, and you can download more podcasts. And let me know what you think of my interview with Jodi, because we're going to get to have her back on. So if you have additional follow-up questions, you can email them to me. And we will surely get to them. But without further ado, I'm so excited to share with you the interview with Jody Cantor. Jody, you are one of Crane's 40 under 40.
0: I was. You was was.
1: <laughs> still have time. Still get to hold that title. You've that. New York Times correspondent, Washington correspondent. Been an editor at Slate. You've been an editor at the New York
0: Times. What does it feel like winning the prestigious Employee of the Month award? I am uh, delighted uh, because I well first I was a little bit terrified because let's talk about um, that you know at the start of the show there were some very funny sketches that involved words that are not generally used in the New York Times and. You know, to exist in the political environment now, to be a politician or a journalist covering politics, is to be kind of in a constant state of fear, because we live in this environment where people are constantly getting zapped for making mistakes or doing anything even mildly inappropriate. And so I, uh, so I worried briefly that, you know, there would be some minor, um, You know, item on a blog the next day saying New York Times political reporter, you know, caught, uh, you know, and oh, yeah, you can get criticized for anything. And so it was completely great because I loved being in this sort of loose, funny environment with this fantastic audience and, you know, and really talking to 25 year olds uh, about my work and about politics, which I really appreciated. But yes, um, there is this. I do a fair number of kind of political talk shows. Yeah, and you've before been on Colbert and John Stewart and. But before, like more like the panel shows where you're a guest, before the show actually starts, everybody says the same thing, which is, "I hope I don't say anything stupid that I'm yes. going to be- get made fun of," because you can you can literally click on Twitter during the commercial break, and yes. you know, and everybody will be ragging on what you say. So you have to be very careful.
1: Okay, but there's also an irony there that. Well, there's two. One is that as a reporter, it's funny how hard it is to be interviewed. So even yes. though you're an expert at interviewing other people, it's do you enjoy being interviewed yourself?
0: Well, you learn a lot from it, right? I mean, it's yeah. really good for any journalist to be on the other side of the microphone occasionally because you become much more thoughtful about what it means to be written about and, um, all that, you know, the interviews that I really enjoyed for the books for, for, you know, my book, the Obama's is about the president and first lady's adjustment to the white house. It's a sort of behind the scenes of what really happened when they got to Washington. And it's a very dramatic story because their claim to fame in politics originally was that they were kind of normal people. They were the Chicagoans, they pumped their own gas, and then they get to this, they get to the white house and it's such a in my reporting, I really discovered what a strange place it was and very hard to live in. And the book is really about... The White House itself, how
1: difficult it was to exactly,
0: live in. Exactly. And, str- and a hard atmosphere to exist in. So anyway, I enjoyed um, i enjoyed a lot of the book interviews. And I, the ones I enjoyed the most were the ones where people pushed me really hard, you know, to to talk about and define what was really happening with the Obamas. I did one with David Brooks, mm-hmm. my colleague, In Washington. And it was interesting because during some of the publicity for the book, people were saying things like, how could you possibly know that? Or, you know, how dare you make those observations about the first couple? And, you know, David's approach was to really push me, you know, and say, well, what do you think about this? And what do you think about this? And, you know, the spirit of those interviews was, let's dig in as deeply as we can Mm -hmm. to understand these people. What are the most original insights we can come up with. And so I I really
1: enjoyed that. Can I ask a question? How much time did you spend with the Obamas and how much time did you spend watching them? Well. And when I say with, I mean talking with them.
0: So political journalists spend very little time actually talking to... Hmm. The people we cover, and a lot of time observing them now i 'm very lucky because I had a really unusual interview with the Obamas in two thousand and nine. Amazingly enough, they actually agreed to talk to me about their marriage. In Why do you see Oval Amazingly? Office because getting an in, get, even getting you know Michelle Obama on the phone is next to impossible okay it, the New York Times White House reporters have sat down with the president once since the start of the administration, the political environment now involves almost no access. It's the same with Mitt Romney. He barely talks to reporters. Getting an interview with him is exceedingly hard. And so I was really lucky to get that time with them, you know, not just one of them, but both of them in the Oval Office. You know, I went to a lot of White House events, um, ceremonies, speeches, Now, often when you're at a White House ceremony, you're just, you are seeing the same thing, Mm -hmm. you know, that ends up on the nightly news, but you're seeing more of it, and it's longer. Um, And I've interviewed each of the Obamas a few times, and it had also been this kind of long-term observation project, because I started covering them at the beginning of 2007, and so it's been now, you know, almost six years. And so that is part of what is so interesting, because I've watched them change a lot.
1: Over the years, yeah, and, and if
0: you read the book, it, it the book is very much about how how they're changing under all this pressure. you know what what effect has power had on these people?
1: I was so impressed I mean there were three different parts of your book that I thought were interesting. One was that I love that you drew out what the actual living situation is because it really shows how majestic it is and how royal it is. But
0: also how confining yes. and claustrophobic it is.
1: That I felt you did in what you wrote. Mm-hmm. I thought that illustrated it more. I think first when I just see, when I'm just looking at a picture of the architectural design, maybe it's because I live in New York in a shoebox, I'm so excited by all the rooms. But in your descriptions, it shows how closed off they have to be and then that they chose to be even more so as the presidency goes on and they really stick with their family friends. That was fascinating.
0: Yeah, it's a question that people ask all the time in Washington. Why do the Obamas only hang out with these two yes. families and very few people beyond them? And so what I did in the book is I not only interviewed these friends, but really went back into their life stories to figure out what connects them to the Obamas and what these right. friendships say about the Obamas themselves. And I think they say a lot.
1: I also thought it was profound to read, you know, that Barack thought this was going to be the time he was going to spend dinner with his kids and that this was going to be the time he was going to give to Michelle what he hadn't before. And I thought, this is the time when you're going to do the opposite. I mean, I would just assume that if you're going to the
0: White House, that's when you to have the least amount of time with your family. He would tell people when he started to run in 2007, you know, the great thing is, if we win, I'm going to really get to spend a lot of time with the kids. We're finally going to live together in the same house. And it, it does tell you something about his character, because, my God, I mean, most families, when they want to spend more time together they scale down. Right. And the Obama scaled way, way up. But that's why it almost seems like delusional in a way. Well, the way I would put it is what were his expectations for the presidency? And then what did he find out once he got there? And, you know, a lot of my reporting showed that his expectations were wrong. He was an outsider. I mean, that that in the presidency, your greatest strength is your greatest weakness. And one of his strengths was that he was really different, right? I mean, he... Was an outsider. He wasn't part of the Washington system. And people really felt that freshness Mm in 2008. It was part of what was exciting to him. Well, then he wins the presidency, and it turns out that he hasn't spent Mm -hmm. that much time in Washington. He's got very little executive or national security or economic experience. Um, He's stepping into the job at a really tough time for the country. And so that newness that was so helpful during the campaign became much more of a liability.
1: How did you feel... Interviewing them, like, what's it like trying to get them to tell the truth? Basically, how do you cozy up to them so that they're going to be honest with you, but also not alienate?
0: Well, and you're doing it, you know, with very little time, with a couple of other White House aides in the room. One thing I appreciate about the Obamas is that the times I've interviewed them, at least, I have felt that they tried to engage and really answer the questions. There are some people you interview who give you the impression that they're just trying to run out the clock or stonewall or just desperately avoid saying anything interesting. And the Obamas are not like that. And I think because it was such an unusual format and topic, Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of great stuff that came up. A a really um, important thing to do is to Plan really well. I mean, you don't saunter in there for a conversation with them with no plan. You work on your question list. I worked on it for a really long time beforehand, and so.
1: And do you time how long you give them to answer one question? If you need to jump to the next, like if you know. Well, you, have you don't. With them? It's
0: really delicate when you're interviewing a very important person because if they're kind of stonewalling and running out the clock and just talking and talking and talking. On the one hand, you don't want to be rude, but on the other hand, you have to maintain some control of the conversation. Um, they didn't do that, but the best question I asked them was that, you know, I just looked at them and I said, what is it like to have an equal marriage when one person is president? And Michelle Obama made this noise like, huh, like she was glad that somebody had asked. And then she did a very smart thing, which is she didn't answer. Uh, She let her husband take the question. And the president normally gives such fluid, well-composed answers, but you know, on this one, he took three tries to answer the question and he really couldn't he kept stumbling and finally he said actually my staff cares a lot more about what michelle obama thinks than about what i think which was a real clue for me in my reporting because it turns out that michelle obama is kind of the keeper of standards ultimately in the white house um so you know that was an example of a question that they didn't give a rehearse right Reply to and I think it was because I'd worked so hard on the question long rambling questions are bad See, now I'm stepping back. Do you
1: feel at Slate or the New York Times? Did you learn how to be a real reporter because I feel like that's not taught for bloggers and things like that But
0: I learned it at the times Um, Slate is fantastic when I was there. There wasn't that much emphasis on reporting. There was more emphasis on inventiveness uh, which it was good to be trained in the kind of style of inventiveness. Coming from law school, right. yeah, exactly. But I learned to work at the Times is to really be steeped in reporting, and I was an editor at the Times before I was a writer. And being an editor at the Times made me want to be a reporter. Reporting is the central thing the Times does. It's the most prized, you know, it's... Is that a normal
1: um, process to go from editing to...
0: It's unusual, but I, I became an editor before I became a reporter, I think in part because I was at Slate where there's not a lot of reporting that happens. But also I was... One of the reasons I knew I wanted to be a journalist was that I was really good at fixing text and fixing documents. Hmm. Um I would fix grad school essays for my friends. This is when
1: you were at Harvard Law.
0: Yeah, or even before that. Yeah. For a long time if there was a piece of writing, I could look at it and say we need to do x y and z and then it'll be better. And so I think that's how I became an editor quickly, which was exciting and great in a lot of ways except that by the time I was 30, I had never been a reporter and I was really missing it because being a journalist is really about going out and experiencing the world and bringing that experience back for other people. And I sort of said to myself, I'm a journalist, but I've never really done the primary thing that journalists do. And I work at the New York Times instead of telling New York Times readers about the world I sit in the New York Times building and I have meetings all day with other New York Times people, which is great in many ways. And uh, maybe I'll get to do that again sometime. But it's not sort of the primary fundamental thing that the newspaper does.
1: What did you start as at Slate? You said you're an assistant. I
0: was, yeah. I Well, I left law school and I went to Slate and I was an editorial assistant, which basically means doing, you know, the windows and the floors. I mean, I would like change the ink cartridge uh, on the printer and answer reader email and stuff like that. But the great thing about Slate was that it was the kind of place where, you know, as long as you're done with your scut work, you can try for anything else. Like, if you have a good idea, nobody there will ever say to you, you can't do that because you're just an editorial assistant. And so I was willing to work hard. And so I, I had a lot of opportunity there. So I became an editor, and I eventually became the culture editor. Um, and then four years later, I went to The Times.
1: And I thought it was interesting because, you know, you got
0: there because you wrote to Frank Rich. and Well, he, he and I had worked on something together. At Slate. Yes, and we got into a conversation about The Times culture coverage, which he was getting ready to sort of help shake up and I said oh you know really what's going on and we got I had I have been reading the Times culture coverage since I was probably 10 or 11 years old and I had a million ideas for what they could do with it and so that's how the conversation started to give Frank rich a full document
1: of what you believe they should be doing there is an, another step you had said to me once that you gave him this laundry list of
0: things. you want. Well, I, I mean, he had asked for my yeah. idea. So what you do in that situation is you write a memo. But, you know, I guess I had been reading the paper for so long and I knew it so well that I did feel I could be bold. The, the first line of that memo was the New York Times is serving its readers spinach for dessert, because I thought, you know, I have to be honest. I have to say what I really think, because If they're interested in me, they have to really be, you know, this is a test of whether the paper, which is a pretty traditional institution on the whole, you know, and, and especially was in like, this is late 2002, like, would they really be willing to try some of these crazy things that I'm recommending? And when you say crazy, what, what are they? Because that's crazy as relative. Crazy as relative. I was not suggesting, you know, that we Start printing it in green ink, or that we run naked photos uh, or right. anything terribly untimesy. And but remember, it was a different era, like, well, but it wasn't the 1940s. <laughs> no, no, let me let me finish, it was in the 1940s. But one of the things that I did that I was actually criticized for a little bit was that I brought in writers whose experience was on the web and not on I paper. See. Okay, and at the time that was considered well, wow. yeah, that was considered to be like a real step. And one that not everybody was, um, was comfortable. Uh, you know, the, mm. the main thing I'll tell you, I'll totally give you my philosophy of culture coverage right here and now, which is that a lot of culture coverage is about what's coming out this week, right? What movies are coming out this week, what mm-hmm. new albums are coming out this week, what new TV shows are starting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's fine, you know, and doing stories about what's coming out, it's all perfectly well and good. But if that's all you're doing, you're not doing enough, I think. You need to be setting an agenda. You need to be saying, well, here are the issues in the movie business, Mm -hmm. you know, that everybody inside the movie business is talking about. Or, you know, here's the real deal with this, you know, with whether classical musicians do X or Y. Like, we ran a story in Arts and Leisure about classical musicians using performance-enhancing drugs because they were using beta blockers to calm their nerves. And so... The thing that I most wanted to do was to take Arts and Leisure from being a kind of preview Yes. Of, you know. Oh, this is kind. Of, oh, you know. There's a new Spike Lee movie. Isn't that cool? Et cetera, et cetera. To having you know a kind of agenda-setting power of its own. You know, we we have such fabulous writers at the Times, and I wanted them to be saying, "This is what to pay attention to. This is a fascinating dilemma in this industry. Here's the person who doesn't necessarily have anything coming out this week, but is the most powerful person you've never heard of." So we did a lot of stories like that.
1: What's it like knowing that? Reviews can make or break people's careers.
0: They can, and they can't. You know, especially in this day and age, I'm not sure that reviews always can. I mean, they say it's true in the theater world, where the times is. I've seen especially two powerful
1: take off from New York Times reviews.
0: Well, so the positive power is a little different from the negative power, okay. right? Because the power to launch is different and maybe more real. I think than in a way a good review can have more power right than a than a negative review. Okay. You know, I think the critics were very careful with Arts and Leisure because it's a Sunday section. I thought a lot more about having the power to draw attention to and spotlight great work than I did about sort of killing things. And you know, often some bands or or you know, shows or movies are so popular that you're not going to actually make a dent. Like I worked very closely with John Perales on a piece about why he hated Coldplay. Mm -hmm. And John Perales, you know, he's the sort of legendary chief music, chief pop music critic for the Times. And John just loves music, and he's an incredibly sweet guy, and he's not a kind of slash and burn critic at all. But we were in a meeting um, one day in my office. We would talk you know, sometimes about new music coming out. And he just started ranting about why he hated Coldplay. And I was like, you have to write that piece. You you, you have to write that. It's a great sort of right. critical essay. So he wrote it and, um, <laughs> it, you know, it made a real splash when it came out. And Gwyneth Paltrow later said terrible things about, you know, him and the story. She was livid, apparently. Um, but, you know, Coldplay is Coldplay. I, you know... John Prellis was going to influence, I think, the critical perception of Coldplay, but he probably wasn't going to make a dent in their album sales. People have outsized emotional reactions to what's in the newspaper. I've gotten razor blades in the mail. Are you serious?
1: Yeah. For what? What happens? People, you know, they, they, I, I
0: mean, there's look, there's definitely a shoot the messenger thing going on with the way people feel about the media, right? And... Uh, I think people just have outsized reactions to a lot of what we write.
1: How do you respond to that when you get something like razor blades in the mail?
0: Well, I'm a mom and my daughter's really young. And so that did scare me as I have a friend who's an NYPD detective. And he helpfully pointed out that, you know, most threats, uh, don't like, are not for real because if, God forbid, somebody really wanted to hurt you, they probably wouldn't send you a letter about it beforehand. <laughs> um, I think that the bigger question is the political world is pretty nasty, right? People attack you. They say negative things about you all the time. And so how can you sort of transcend that, right? I mean, how yes. can you... I should explain what I do now at The Times, which is that I write a lot about the Obama still, and I've been writing about Romney of late too. And my job is really to get beyond, you know, the ads and the debates and the sort of political spinning and talk about you know, what their biographical influences really are. And, you know, talk about the last couple of years of the presidency and how the president has really performed and what he's learned and what we've learned about him. And, you know, I'll give you an example. I just wrote a big piece about Mitt Romney's Mormonism, um, how it influenced him. And so... The question is like in this sort of nasty accusatory environment, how do you really do the best work, the best public service? How do you make sure that your journalism is, you know, so airtight that you're being fair to everybody and that you're, I mean, one of the things that I really like about my job is that the stuff that we do often doesn't conform to political caricature. Like this piece I wrote about Mitt Romney as a Mormon It just, you know, the the story did not fit the conventional, you know, left, leftist critique slash character of Mitt Romney, nor did it totally fit, you know, the campaign's flat but heroic, you know, superhero version of Mitt Romney. That particular story had no trouble sticking out because the question of whether to even write about Romney's Mormonism has been somewhat of a debate. Now, we write about every candidate's faith. We always um, have, right? Yeah, we always, I mean, for those who are religious, obviously, we look at their faith, you know, where it comes from, how it influenced their life, et cetera, et cetera. So in that sense, it was a very standard piece for us. But, you know, we knew going in that Romney's Mormonism was incredibly influential in his life, but that he doesn't like to talk about it um, and has some has some fears that, you know, I, I understand that there's still a lot of anti-Mormon sentiment out there. In a poll that uh, the Wall Street Journal and NBC did a couple of weeks ago, 27% of people said that they or somebody they knew would have qualms about voting for a Mormon president. I think
1: there's a confusion over uh, Mormonism and the different offshoots of it. I think that, that there must be a lot of ignorance as well.
0: I think there is a lot of ignorance about what the religion really is. Absolutely. And so anyway, so we knew that that would, um, we knew that just because we were sort of delving deeply into it, that it would get a lot of attention. But the thing is, when you talk to the people who really know Romney, especially from his church, they say, you know, this is who he is. This is what has really influenced um His life, after the story was published, I got like a hundred emails from really angry conservative readers who said, How could you write about Mitt Romney's faith without looking at the relationship between Barack Obama and Jeremiah Wright? The truth is is that in two thousand and seven, I broke the news of the initial tension between Barack Obama and Jeremiah Wright and then went on to write some very long, exhaustive um, articles about... Jeremiah Wright, which it it was incredibly tricky because of all of the race and religion stuff. Jeremiah Wright ended up personally attacking me. He wrote this he wrote this um, yeah, he wrote this really fiery um, it's sort of one of my favorite um, battle scars now because (laughs) as this, you know, as the whole thing begins to fade into history, I think, my God, the most controversial, controversial figure of the 2008 campaign wrote this personal letter about me it's so crazy it's such an odd thing to have to have happened and so anyway so um but do not take it personally well, I think that becoming a political reporter is really about learning that it's not about you, right? I mean, it, it's no. When Jeremiah Wright says, you know, this New York Times reporter, you know, did such a terrible thing and was so unfair to me. Da, 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 clearly, because he was coming under a lot of criticism for saying all the things to me that he had said. He had said some very incendiary things to me. Um, so no, it's totally not about you. And also it's not about you in the sense that often people are talking to you because you work for the New York Times and they want some input, you know, into what's going to be in the paper. And so you can never let yourself think that, you know, oh, it's because, you know, I ask such great questions or, you know, uh, it's it's often not that. It's that they, you know, want to be influential in the political process and this is, an avenue for that, so um, I think that's absolutely right.
1: Even when someone tweets, I mean, I just remember
0: reading one tweet to you about that you were uh, anti-Semitic. Yeah, well, you know, as we discussed the other night, anti-Semitism is a big problem in my family. <laughs> um, as the, as a
1: granddaughter know, but, of a Holocaust survivor, right?
0: Person. So, but yeah. but that's but that's Katie. That is the perfect proof that it's not about you, right? Because there are two lessons there. People will say anything about you. And two people allege stuff that is so crazy. I'm the Hebrew speaking grandchild of Holocaust survivors. And yet some person who knows nothing, you know, about me will glibly assert that I, I have a real anti-Semitism problem on Twitter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so that's the perfect proof, right? That you're just, you know, it's sort of like you're a, you're a, It's like you're in this drama and you're, you know, in the cast of characters. Your name is not Jody Cantor. It's New York Times reporter. Right. Right. And that, okay. And that's the role you. At the Times, it's ultimately about the institution in so many ways. And the Times is very team oriented. Um, We work together really, really closely. And so the book was a solo act. So that was really different for me because I actually hired my editor from the paper to work on the book with me because I really wanted, I knew, you know, I didn't sort of know specifically what the issues were before I started recording, but her name is Rebecca Corbett. She's an incredible editor. She was David Simon's editor at the Baltimore Sun when he, back when he wrote all of those stories that later later became became, Homicide (laughs) and The Wire. And so, I mean, that's the kind of person we're talking about, a really amazing editor. And so, um, I knew that, before I knew what any of the issues were, I just knew that there were going to be a lot of delicate issues involved in reporting this book, and I wanted uh, my editor from the paper to work on it to really help make sure that I was on very firm journalistic ground. Um, But, so that was the difference, because the book, even though the book is a reported book, it's not an opinion book, it really is my... observations about the Obamas I mean it I don't use the first person in it no but, at all but it but it's me you know it's me watching them and me watching what's happening to them and me and you know the reporting most of the reporting came from these very intense interviews I did with the people close to them and you know we were talking about things like how does the Obama how did the Obama marriage play out during the health care debate and you know, do the Obamas use their kids for political gain? You know, do they sort of market um, Malia and Sasha in certain ways? And, you know, even though winning the presidency and coming to Washington seems like the most, you know, fabulously exciting thing in the world, that adjustment was off, was really traumatic in a lot of ways. And what are some of the painful things that happened the book is pretty honest. I think they were really honest. They, we knew, you know. They knew that I was seeing stuff, you know, and they knew that I had been watching for a long time. So one of the unusual things about the work I do is that I really pay as much attention to the first lady as I yes, do to that's the completely president. Completely unusual, yeah. And that you know it's important to me um, because I think that. Just on pure journalistic principle, sometimes if you pay attention to the person who is ignored as a subject you can learn a lot. And the history of all these presidential books and biographies is that the first lady is usually pushed off to the side and is not considered as a serious subject, even though we know from history that first ladies in private are the most influential. So So the theory of sort of my reporting on Michelle Obama is that if you watched Michelle Obama and if you could figure out what was going on with her, you could figure out what was going on with the presidency that that she, in a way, is a very reliable guide to what 's really going on in the presidency because she 's so close to it, and she has so much invested in it, and her husband, you know is kind of this poker player who doesn't um he doesn't let other people know what 's on his mind. Michelle Obama is um, much more legible, much clearer people know what she 's thinking inside the White House, and so you know, if you could sort of see the way she was reacting, you could understand a lot more about what was going on internally. And so people, I don't know, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to speak for my sources, but I think they knew that I knew what was really happening. And so therefore we were able to discuss it in a pretty honest way. And remember that people who work in the White House, they're doing a lot of processing, right? Like they're they're sort of trying to figure out what's happening in real time. So it helps
1: them to talk to you.
0: And they're observing the president and first lady very closely. They're watching them all the time. Because they're
1: learning as, as, as they go. It's it's
0: part of their jobs, you know, to to track what's going on with the president and first lady and, you know, figure out how to help her be productive in some way. Um, but also it's like they've been on this journey for years, you know, that it is so dramatic and so high stakes. I mean, one of the questions in the book is, you know, is Michelle Obama going to be able to kind of resolve herself to, you know, life in the bullseye? I mean, everybody in the White House knew that this was not a life she really wanted. You know, somebody once said to me, if you ask Michelle, did she want Barack? If you ask Michelle Obama a hundred times, did she want her husband to be, did she truly want her husband to be president? She would not say, Yes, once. But, you know, she did it for his sake because she didn't want to stop him. And so she gets to the White House and she's really a fish out of water in so many ways and has to learn to make her way in this environment that is so not natural for her and, and that she's not suited to in a lot of ways because she's a really frank person she um, has not liked being sort of confined to very elite institutions.
1: I wanted to ask, what was it like to have her respond? Because the response changed over time to the book.
0: Yeah. Well, it was very strange because she said kind of a muddled thing. She said she hadn't read the book. But then she said something, which might have been in reference to the book, but might have been in reference to, like, more general things, that she didn't like being portrayed as an angry black woman. Now,
1: I thought that was in reference to people's responses to the book. Yes, I think
0: that's what White House officials later said, that she was reacting to some of the kind of tabloidy coverage of the book, Um, because, you know, on that, I would agree with her. One thing that was kind of upsetting to me as an author is how quickly people you know like i think my book was the lead story on inside edition one night and you know the the story they were telling was not the story that i had reported you know they had like much more of a meddling first lady you clashing yes. with the husband's advisors and um,
1: although that does come up at least in the audio version it's very heightened because this person's voice makes things seem more dramatic than they may have meant to
0: Yeah, but it's read. important not to exaggerate the facts. Like, for example, Michelle Obama, when she had issues with her husband's advisors, always went through intermediaries. She was never bursting into the West Wing, Yes, I see. you know, I see. to I see. sort of pick fights with people directly. That's a pretty important distinction if you're a First Lady. Absolutely. So anyway, on that, I would agree with Michelle Obama. But... Um, The White House at the same time was saying things like, this is a pretty flattering portrait, you know, of the two of them. Um, And so I think initially people didn't know what to make of the book because the news cycle is so quick and short and Twitter is 140 characters. And a book, you know, a book is, is the opposite of all of that, right? I mean, a book takes a while to read. And the whole point of a book is that something you know, one thing could happen on page 30, but then something completely different could happen on page 110. And um, it took a few days, I think, for people to get a real sense of it. Uh, you know, a nice thing was that John Stewart had me on and he really defined what the book was for people and said, you know, this is a portrait of two people in the White House who are sort of struggling to find their footing, but it's not unflattering, you know, to them. It's not like an un- attack book. In any way. And I think that one reason why people had trouble labeling it is that we're in such a politically polarized atmosphere and everything is either sort of red or blue or, you know, Democratic or Republican. And so in some ways, I felt like people either wanted a hagiography, mm-hmm. um, you know, just a complete Valentine to how the o- wonderful the Obamas are in every way, or other people wanted. You know, some down. sort of a takedown attack bo- you know book and and my book is really neither what I try so hard to do in the book and also in my work at the paper is to move beyond those labels and to remember that these are human beings. i I once asked an Obama advisor who had never worked in the White House before this presidency. I said, "What is the most surprising thing to you about working for a president of the United States?" And he said, that he's a real person, you know, that the president of the United States gets colds and has good days and bad days and laughs at things and gets annoyed and you know all, all the things that Can the rest you of us to do that?
1: because you were talking about having to be careful about what you say as a reporter. Do you, do you feel Well, that? I think as
0: a reporter we experience, you know, a, th- a thousandth of what politicians do. I mean, we, we do have to be very careful and conduct ourselves well and, you know, not mouth off. But it's nothing in comparison to the way the politicians president. have to live. And, and they often get in trouble for being honest.
1: You had mentioned um, when you first started The Times that you learned how to be a journalist there. And I was just curious, what uh, to be a reporter, what were the things that you specifically learned?
0: Well, there are the big things and the little things, Right the big the big I mean the the talk to me about the little ones at the there are a lot of um, subtle reporting tricks like if you're in a restaurant having a good conversation with somebody that's productive you keep ordering you order coffee (laughs) you order dessert (laughs) you might have another drink because you you don't want to leave you want to keep the conversation going um Ah, the little things, you know, I think you learn, you learn how not to miss things, right? I mean, I think you learn how to, you become a better and better and better listener. And yet you can never be good enough because you'll still have times when, you know, you say to yourself, I should have listened more closely to that answer. I think you also learn how to be tough in certain ways.
1: And what are those specific ways? How have you toughened up? Like, if you were to look back. Well,
0: first of all, campaigns are often really unhappy. I'll tell you a funny story about campaigns. So campaigns exist in a state of perpetual unhappiness with our coverage. And there is, you know, a certain amount of, you know, sending of angry, hyperbolic emails or late-night phone calls telling you, you know, what a... Terrible thing you've written, and by the way, you know, so there's a fair amount of competitiveness. And it, this is from other reporters. I'm no, 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 them. it's <laughs> from the campaigns. And remember also that, you know, campaign people exist in a constant state of anxiety often, and especially as the campaign progresses, people just get incredibly revved up. And so, um, one day in the summer of 2008, I had had written this article about Obama. It was about actually how he was doing among, well, I shouldn't even say that much about which article it was because I don't want to give the person away. But so I I had written this article about Obama and an early version of it went to the International Herald Tribune. So the campaign had seen it. But we were continuing to tweak it. You know, Mm -hmm. nothing was wrong in that version, but we were continuing to make it better. And then a version was going in the paper the next day. And there were some improvements we were making to the article. And I got home that night from work and my daughter was on my lap and she was two years old at the time. Um, and uh, this campaign aide calls me and he starts to yell at me on the phone and he's yelling at me about stuff that we were already kind of improving and fixing. And I kept telling him, we're on it, we're on it. Like, don't worry. Like, you'll be happy. You'll be, if not happy, you'll be okay with the version that's in tomorrow's paper. But he just kept yelling. And so my daughter... Was um, sitting on my lap and she grabbed the phone and she started singing to him. Um, and she sang him the, that Barney song that goes, <laughs> I love you, you love me, we're as happy as can be. And he had no idea what to do because, you know, he was in this fit, he was in this rage. And, you know, all of a sudden there was this two year old that was singing at him. And um, that to me, that's the moment, one of the moments I'll always remember from the campaign. It was so funny to me, you know, because, and in a way my, my kid shut him up in a way that I never could have.
1: Oh, no, it seems lucky that she was there. So you put the articles online before they're done.
0: No, 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 we don't. We don't. We, We put them online, but we'll, you know, we'll continue to sort of play with them a little bit around the margins. Isn't that dangerous for you guys? no because they go because it's not like they just get slapped up on the website even to okay. be put up on the website they go through the editing process first
1: how did you switch from culture to politics
0: um the short version is that Jill Abramson who is now the executive editor but was then the number 2 editor and I were talking at the end of 2006 and she asked me to look into Barack Obama's time at Harvard Law School and You know, she said later she just thought I might make a good political reporter.
1: And do you feel like this is where you want to be?
0: Oh, yeah, I love, yeah, I really love it. I mean, we're talking at a great time because it's, we're really heading into the most exciting part of the presidential campaign. And every day there's so much to do and so much to think about and more stories to write than I can write. And especially because I've been watching the Obamas for so long, and the president for so long you know there's a real joy in having sort of been on the journey and there are things i see that happen in the campaign now that could connect or thing, you know even th- there are things he says or does now that contradict things yes. i heard him say or do in 2008 and it's really interesting because i'll say to myself wait a second i was standing in the press conference in south carolina in 2008 where he said x and now he's like totally doing why and um you know it's really striking because i've seen it with my own eyes
1: how do you keep up physically also because the staffers look so young the the campaign staffers well
0: i'm not running around the country okay. um the way you know and and the 2008 was a sort of massive exercise in running around the country for a really long time it's less so this time because there was a republican primary but not a democratic one and the republican primary is over now um When you travel, there are definitely stamina issues. Although I found that traveling in 2008 while tiring was not as tiring as taking care of a two-year-old. Okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Is there a nap room at the New York Times or anything like that? There are
0: nap rooms.
1: And do people really use them or do they feel...
0: I will confess to having used them.
1: Oh, I think they're great. I just didn't
0: know if people feel comfortable in real
1: offices using them. I would sleep under a desk if it was kosher.
0: Yeah. um, No people use them. People use them because you'll, you'll take a red eye or you'll be up all night writing an article and you'll just need to lay down for 40 minutes to be able to function.
1: How competitive is it within your office? Do you feel other people are gunning for your
0: position or your story? I would say that there's a pretty strong team ethos at the times. To the extent that there's any internal competition, it is so dwarfed, I think, by the desire to beat our competitors. Mm-hmm. That, you know, it's not something I worry about a ton. You know, and the, I I mean, the the way most people I know feel is that there's so many stories each of us want to do and we can't possibly get to all of them. It's very rare I see somebody, I see a colleague do a story and I think, you know, I just feel so strongly about wanting to have written that one because usually I'm happy with like the five things that I have to do.
1: Do you aspire to be a columnist? Um, was Jill Abramson hoping that you would continue up to where she is?
0: Oh my goodness, uh, I find it really hard to think in those terms. That's I... exhausting.
1: You don't need you'd need the nap room for that.
0: No, you'd need the nap room for that. And you know, I guess when I speak to you know young people and college students and stuff, I always say, I wish I could tell you that I was the kind of person who had like a five-year plan and a ten-year plan but I don't, I mean, I'm much more of an opportunist in that I, you know, I've always tried to do the most interesting thing available to me, you know, at any given time and also to push myself in certain ways, but no, I don't have any grand plans. Beyond tomorrow morning, what are you doing tomorrow? Good question. Tomorrow, tomorrow I'm basically working the phones. And so
1: who are you calling when you you work the phones? Mm -hmm.
0: I'm working on about three different stories now. Some of the people I want to talk to kind of overlap. And I'd say almost all of the phone calls are of the nature of calling people and just chatting and being like, okay, what's your read on this? Have you heard anything about this? What do you think is going to happen with this? Kinds of those sorts of questions. Do you
1: feel like you're able to get as far on the phone as you would in person?
0: Depends. Um, In person can be great. uh, And it's nice to really connect with people um, but the phone can have an intimacy of its own. So
1: the next interview, we'll have to do it on the phone.
0: That's fine. And see if it works that way.
1: (laughs) Um, I don't want to take up any more time because you are a working mom, but I'm, I'm so grateful. This was so exciting to sit down and talk with you and hear about your work.
0: Um, I love doing the show.
1: Good. So we get to have you back. Absolutely. Okay. So then you'll be an employee of many months. (laughs) Thank you so much, Jody Cantor. This was lovely. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can go to employeeofthemonthshow.com and that will take you to SoundCloud where you can download individual episodes or you can subscribe to the entire series for free on iTunes, highly recommended. I want to give a very special thanks to Todd Rosenberg, Ian Mazoff, Damian Strange, and used to be theater for making this possible and most especially, to you listening. I really, really appreciate it. Um, that's it. Thanks so much. Okay, have a wonderful day. Eat lots of vegetables and make sure to get some exercise for both of us. Okay, bye.